only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Happy Friday to you. Weekend is upon us. In terms of still two more days of activity at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, this is Beyond the Bricks. My name is Jake Query. Mike Thompson joins me as well. Before we get to that, let's get right to the activity for tomorrow in terms of the schedule. What you can anticipate tomorrow at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, 8.15 in the morning, it is the warm-up for the Gallagher Grand Prix. That is the IndyCar side of things. Then at 9.35, it's a one-hour practice session for the Verizon 200 at the Brickyard. That is the Cup Series. Then it is Cup qualifying immediately following that. That's going to be until 11.30 in the morning. And then at 12.30, the Gallagher Grand Prix. That is the IndyCar race race that takes place at 12:30 after that at 3:30 in the afternoon it is the Xfinity Pennzoil 150 at the Brickyard so a full day of racing for you tomorrow at the world's greatest race course and then on Sunday of course it is the Verizon 200 at the Brickyard that is the cup race that will be taking place with tickets still available by the way and as low as $35 gates are going to open at 11 in the morning race getting underway at 2:30 in the afternoon. Mike, it is a flurry of activity. It is always fun to see both different series out on the racetrack and one of the things that makes that in- makes that interesting that we talk a lot about is the fact that each car when they go out there is going to have to get used to turning a couple of laps with a rubber laid down that is totally different than that that's on their tires. Oh, yeah. I mean, different different series using different tires. I mean, I assume that's going to have to be a huge challenge for the drivers to overcome, especially with having uh, the Xfinity cars, the Indy cars, and the Cup cars all in one weekend. Absolutely. Now, I have a list before me, Mike Thompson, because tonight what we're going to talk about is those that have made the crossover, if you will, not necessarily with this event, but stock cars, Indy cars, Indy 500, NASCAR, etc., and the cross-pollination, if you will, of these two racing series, the two biggest series in North America, historically speaking. And we can go back to, and let's begin, I guess, with this, Mike, in talking about the original form of NASCAR at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We've talked about it over the course of the week, but we'll recap, I guess, to an extent. In 1994, it all began when Jeff Gordon won. Things went, of course, further back than that when Tony George sat down with the France family and talked, I think, probably to the much to the surprise of many people that later found out about it, to have the discussions about ultimately cup cars running at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But in the early years, Mike, it was as big an event as anybody could imagine, both from a NASCAR side's thrill of being at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway's thrill of having NASCAR there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what a what a massive event. I mean, when you think about the fact that even the we've talked about this before, even the, the test before they even announced the race was there were so many people there for the test and what a what a huge anticipation it was. I mean, just a massive event. Now, Mike, I recall and I, I've shared this story before. For those that are and, and it's worth repeating, in my opinion, at least, but 
For those that are curious how big the Brickyard 400 was in its infancy at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, in 1998, which would have been the, let's see, 94, 5, 6, 7, 8, so the fifth running of the Brickyard 400, in 1998, um, the Brickyard 400 was running in August, of course, and the... I was working at WRTV, the ABC television station here in Indianapolis, and I was trying to basically break my way into the business. I was a young guy that was working behind the scenes as a through a temp agency to work any hours I could to tear scripts or mix coffee or cut tape, whatever was necessary to get my foot in the door and get exposed into the world of sports casting, which I had dreamed of since I was a kid. And I was thrilled to have the opportunity at Channel 6 to be the lowest man on the totem pole. If they had a seven-person sports department, I was person eight. And I will never forget, for the 1998 Brickyard 400, about a week beforehand, and I was super thrilled about the possibility of going out and seeing the fifth running of the Brickyard. At that point, I had only been to one of them previously. And they came up to me and said, okay, so on Brickyard weekend we're sending you to Champaign, Illinois. And I was crushed. Why would I have to go to Champaign, Illinois? I want to be here at the world's greatest racetrack to see some 300,000 people watching a NASCAR event. And they said, well, the Colts have a scrimmage against the Rams over in Champaign. It's part of their training camp. They're doing a combined camp together. So they're going to have an actual scrimmage. So we're going to send you over there to, to do some interviews afterwards and, and what we call get sound bites. So I always tell people that if you want to know how big the Brickyard 400 was in its early years, for the fifth running of it, I was one of two media members from the city of Indianapolis that was there to interview Peyton Manning after his first ever chance to throw footballs against another defense in the National Football League. Now, can you imagine today, with the way the Colts moved the needle and certainly Peyton Manning, the lowest of the low they sent over there, and I was the only TV person. I was the only person from a TV or radio station over there in Champaign. Mike Chappell, the beat writer for the Star, was the only other person there. Everyone was covering the Brickyard 400. Since then, we have had, obviously, drivers who have done both, run both an IndyCar and a stock car uh, at the Brickyard 400 or the Indianapolis 500. We've done this before, Mike, but I'm going to challenge you right now. Can you name off for me and that impeccable steel trap memory of yours all of the drivers who have run the Brickyard 400 and the Indianapolis 500? Oh, all of them. Sure. Yeah, we can. I'll probably get almost all of them, at least. I'll bet you can do um, 10 off the top of your head. Go ahead. All right. Uh, go. Let's see. Juan Pablo Montoya. Correct. Uh, Kurt Busch. Correct. Uh, A.J. Foyt. Correct. John Andretti. Correct. Uh, Sam Hornish. Correct. Jimmy Johnson. Uh, correct. Jack Villeneuve. Uh, correct. Robbie Gordon. Correct. Uh, Danica Patrick. Correct. Uh, Jeff Brabham. Correct. Patrick Carpentier. Correct. Uh, J.J. Yaley. Correct. Jason Leffler. Correct. Now, here's uh, Almond, what's funny. Almondinger. Correct. So, if A.J. Uh, AJ Foyt actually has done it, and he has a guy with his first name, A.J. Almondinger, who has done it, he also has a guy with his last name that's done it. Oh, Larry Foyt. Correct. You are missing... Scott, Scott Pruitt. Yep. Uh, Sam Hornish. You said Hornish already, yep. Uh, Tony Stewart. Correct. You are missing, uh, my friend. I believe just one. 
You were oh. miss no, you're missing two. One of them won the Indy 500. Who won the Indy 500? He just took a little spin. Oh, Danny Sullivan. Yep, and the other one is going to be in race control for the IndyCar race this weekend. Oh, race control. No, Max Pappas. That is correct. That is all of them. But that is not to say that there are not drivers who have not run from one series and gone over to the other before the advent of the Brickyard 400. We'll get to that in a second. Mike, let's begin with this. You heard my story about the early years of the Brickyard 400. Your recollections of the early years of this event. Uh, one of my favorite stories, I think I told it last year, was was the test, believe it or not. The the first year when when Davey Allison got a chance to test, and that's one of the biggest things that I lament is the fact that Davey Allison never got to drive in the Brickyard 400 because, um, you know, he – he had uh, gotten to do the test, and I talked to him at Michigan, and uh, we, we had a very brief chance to talk to him, um, and I got one question in because there were so many other people trying to get a question in, and I, you know, I'm from Toledo, and I'm a nobody, and I fired one quick question. I was like, how was the test? And he's like, he's like, you know, loved it, and I, he goes, I think we're going to get to run there. And he had the biggest grin, and it was the only time he grinned the entire time he did the, the quick media availability. And so I just wish that Davey had had a chance to, to run in a in a cup race at, at the Brickyard. I think it would have meant so much to him. But, but you know, having Jeff win the first one home, you know, with his, you know, all the hometown fans he had, you know, from Pittsburgh, and, you know, obviously he's not from indiana but he you know he has such a following in pittsburgh but uh you know that was it was huge it was a huge deal you know the indianapolis 500 and the the indianapolis motor speedway in general mike obviously you know i think in the early years and maybe a lot of people who weren't around then may not realize this but there was kind of a there was a subtle rivalry that brewed and maybe not in the first couple of years but certainly once the split happened in 96 from the open wheel side you know the age-old argument began of or the the discussion began i remember dale jarrett being asked after races you know which is bigger this or the daytona 500 and the nascar drivers were very careful to answer that you know diplomatically by saying Listen, the Daytona 500 is still our Super Bowl, but this one is huge because they respected the venue. And I don't think there was any question they respected the venue, but I think that there were some fans from an open wheel side that felt threatened to an extent by NASCAR and felt territorial about the Speedway itself. But to be fair, I never got the impression, Mike, that any of the drivers coming over ever felt like they were doing the Speedway a service. I think most of them were well aware of the fact that the Speedway itself was lending a service to them by letting them race there. Oh, I agree 100%. I mean, you all you have to do is listen to what Dale Jr. talked about, how much his dad wanted to race there and how much his dad wanted to win there. I mean, in my collection of the negatives and stuff I own, um, I've got uh, several shots that, that Dale Jr. or Dale Sr. had asked to have photographs taken of his team you know, on pit road in case they never did get to race there to show that, that he had gotten to drive at IMS. And so uh, it meant a lot to them. And I agree with you. I mean, I, I don't think they felt like they were doing, you know, like the speedway needed NASCAR. I, I think they felt kind of the other way around that, uh, you know, it was a true honor and privilege for them to be able to, to race at the Bricker. There are those that made a living driving stock cars 
and yet that itch was within them to ultimately run the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Some of them hailed even from the epicenter of stock car racing. Like, for example, the guy that we're about to talk about. Born in 1921, Marshall Teague was born in Daytona Beach, Florida, and by 1951, he was a Daytona Beach road course stock car winner. In 1952 and 1954, he was a AAA national stock car champion. He was willing to drive any sort of stock car in any way that he could, but yet he always had a dream of ultimately running in the Indianapolis 500. That didn't make him different than many drivers from around the world in different racing disciplines. But ultimately, that itch became something that needed to be scratched. Here is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway historian emeritus Donald Davidson on talking about Marshall Teague. The point is that when Marshall Teague wanted to run Indianapolis, and this is from boyhood, Marshall Teague was from Daytona Beach. He didn't move there. He actually was born and raised there and went through the school system. But uh, from the time he was a kid, he wanted to drive in the 500. Well, he was very much a part of NASCAR. In fact, he was at the original meeting at the Streamline Motel, and uh, there were, I think there was like 35 people in this meeting when Bill France, December the 14th, 1947, I think is the date, and Bill France outlined his plans for forming this organization, which they ended up calling the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing. And not only was Marshall Teague present at that meeting, but they actually named him treasurer. So anyway, he was one of the early NASCAR standouts. He wanted to run Indianapolis, but the only way that he could do that was to join AAA, which was the sanctioning body in those days. And so at the end of the 51 season, he actually turned in his NASCAR membership and then uh, joined AAA. Well, he couldn't run Indianapolis the first year because he needed to show his allegiance to the new organization. They didn't know, you know, they, they wanted this guy to prove himself. He was a stock car driver, and uh, can he drive one of these things? So anyway, he actually uh, ran AAA for the whole year, stock cars only, but he won the championship. And uh, I think Jack McGrath was, uh, and the late Frankie Luptow were his uh, chief opponents, but he won the championship, and then he landed a ride with Hart Fullerton. It was a dirt car. And uh, anyway, he qualified um, back away. But during the race, and this is the thing, and I, I've made, I've probably run this point into the ground many times. The final results don't always tell the story. And if you look up Marshall Teague in 1953, he finished 18th. Yeah, but he actually got up to third at one point and was running a very steady fifth when an oil leak uh, developed and uh, he had to retire after 169 laps and he was a fairly hefty uh, portly fellow and he was so overcome with the heat this 1953 was the year of the terrible heat and uh, still about 630 yards of the main straightaway were bricks he he was just about beaten to a pulp and uh, couldn't get out of the car on his own I mean they actually had to have a couple of others at this films to show that after they undo the uh, the belts they had to put their hands underneath his um, armpits and just lift him out of the car with his feet sort of dragging behind and, and dropping to the ground 
Marshall Teague, by the way, was ultimately inducted into the National Motorsports Press Association's Hall of Fame in 1968, a colorful career in the Indianapolis 500, as you heard Donald talk about in the fact that he ran there in 1953, beginning and then coming back, running again 1957. Here's Donald Davidson with more on Teague. Anyway, uh, Marshall Teague uh, finished out the season on stock cars. I don't think he ran any other champ races that year. And uh, he dropped to fourth in the stock car standings in 54. He was back to drive for Hart Fullerton. He qualified, but he got bumped. He was the third alternate starter, and I think there was 11 cars completed four lap runs that didn't make it. So uh, he beat a lot of good cars, but it wasn't good enough to get in. And he did serve relief on race day. Uh, he was actually standing by for Jack McGrath, with whom he'd come very close. But uh, McGrath waved him off each time. He was fine, but Marshall Teague did drive a stint for Dwayne Carter with the Auto Shipper Special, the dirt car uh, version. They had two cars in the race. They had a, a roadster and a dirt car, and that ended up in 15th place with uh, Jimmy Jackson and Tony Bettenhausen also co-driving. And in the meantime, Marshall Teague drove some laps for Gene Hartley in the John Zink Special, which was also a dirt car. All right, the following year, he came back and was not an entry driver, but he did drive a couple of cars in practice, and one of them was the Novi. This was the last year for the front drive Novi, and uh, Troy Rutman was the driver, and it ended up they had a mechanical problem, and uh, they went home, but Marshall Teague did take some laps in that, and then in 56, he was entered on a Dean Van Line specialist teammate to Jimmy Bryan. I don't know that that one ever got on the track. He picked up the assignment with the Sumar Special Stream liner and ran that in practice and he also uh, this was the first year for the rear drive Novi, Novi's and there were two of those, Paul Russo Jimmy Davies was in the second one but Jimmy D Davies departed uh, after a while and it ended up that Eddie Russo who was Paul Russo's nephew uh, got the assignment but Marshall Teague did drive some laps in that and uh, when the, uh, the, the last day they had a lot of rain problems and several cars were left in line, and one of them was the Sumar Streamliner with Marshall Teague at the wheel. Um, all right, 57, he came back, oh, I did, just to do stock cars just a little bit, he, he won back his stock car title in 54 that, that he'd lost to Frank Rebel Mundy, uh, who actually followed him from NASCAR and, and tried to make it at the Speedway, but wasn't successful, and then in 56, uh, Marshall, T and, and by the way, Marshall Teague was driving the Hudson Hornet, I don't know if I mentioned that, uh, 56, he drove, uh, he had a Chevy, and he finished second in uh, USAC points, which was the first year for USAC to replace AAA, and back to the Speedway in 57, driving the Sumar Special again, except this was the one that was new in 54 that uh, Jimmy Daywalt had sat on the front row and led the race with, and this time it worked out a little better, and Marshall Teague ran all day and finished seventh, and earned membership into the champion 100 mile an hour club uh, 58 he was back and, and uh, back with Sumar 
This time he didn't make it, and he was entered with them again for 59, but uh, by the time uh, the, the uh, month of May came around, he was already deceased. They had taken the Streamliner down to Daytona, which was brand new, 1959, and Bill France put up a prize for of $10,000 for the first person to be able to do a 180-mile-an-hour lap uh, down there, and uh, Marshall Teague and Chapman Root uh, decided that they wanted to try and go after it, and something went wrong, and the car flipped, and, and Marshall Teague was, uh, was fatally injured. But anyway, by all accounts, he was one of the nicest people that, that, that uh, ever drove a race car. Uh, he's one of many people who drove in the race in uh, the late, you know, from the, the point of uh, World War II ending uh, through to the, the late 50s who actually served in the war. I think he was in the Air Force, Marshall Teague we're talking about. I think he did six years in the Air Force. And one other quick note about Marshall Teague, if you've ever seen the movie Cars, the uh, the Pixar movie Cars, he's the inspiration for the Paul Newman Doc Hudson character, the, the fabulous Hudson Hornet. That's Marshall Teague. Now, Marshall Teague was not the only one that did exactly what we're talking about. Not not being in cars, but uh, driving cars in both NASCAR, stock car, and the Indianapolis 500 before the Brickyard 400. There were others. We'll tell you about them when we return to Beyond the Bricks. Jake Quarry, Mike Thompson, Beyond the Bricks. Brickyard Weekend, the Verizon 200, technically speaking, and then, of course, the Gallagher Grand Prix for IndyCar. That race is going to be tomorrow, the IndyCar race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, as well as qualifying for the Verizon 200. That's the cup cars on the road course, and then the Xfinity race, which kind of kicked all of this off in terms of the road course. Those cars are fabulous, made for the road course at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. What we're talking tonight about drivers from before this, before they had the opportunity to run stock cars at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and just simply wanted to run it and therefore came over to try to run Indy cars at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. You just heard Donald Davidson talking about Marshall Teague. Reality is there were others, Mike Thompson. Yeah, there sure were. And one of them was one of the all-time greats, Paul Goldsmith. Uh, he, you know, he's the oldest living, currently the oldest living Indianapolis 500 driver. I mean, he's 96 years old currently, and he'll, he'll be 97 in a couple months. And I just talked to him on the phone a few months ago when I was doing my project uh, of my racing trading card set. I wanted him to be in the set, and I wanted to approach him. I called him up, and I, you know, wanted to reintroduce myself because I've known him for a long time. But, you know, I wanted to reintroduce myself. And I started to tell him who I, he's like, but he goes, Oh, Mike, I know you. He goes, and anything you want, you got, he goes, you want to put me in the set? Anything for you, Mike. He said, it's just like that. And when Paul Goldsmith says anything for you, uh, that really means a lot because uh, Paul Goldsmith's one of the absolute all time greats. And one of the other all time greats is one of his closest friends, the historian emeritus of the Indianapolis motor speedway, Donald Davidson talking about Paul Goldsmith. Uh, he was actually born in West Virginia. I think it was uh, was at Parkersburg, I think. 
And when he was quite young, well, actually, he lived in, I didn't know this until uh, recently, he said he actually went to school in Columbus, Ohio for a while and then uh, ended up in Detroit, actually St. Clair Shores, Michigan. And uh, I'm not sure if his father uh, worked for the auto, in the automobile industry, but uh, Paul was a, uh, worked for Chrysler. Uh, on the assembly line, I believe. A very successful motorcycle racer and a mentor to uh, Joe Leonard. Uh, went into stock cars, became very successful, never drove open-wheel cars, and, and drove in the 500. I'm just uh, hurrying this along to, to kind of uh, cram it all in. I think stock cars uh, was his forte and motorcycles, of course, but he did drive in the 500 uh, from 58 uh, through 63. And uh, he finished, uh, he dr- drove for Smoky Eunuch in 58 and, and was involved in the first lap accident, so never even made it to, to turn four on lap one. But the second outing in 1959, driving the, uh, a laydown Dambler special that had finished second the year before with George Amick, he finished fifth. And then in 1960, the great battle between Jim Rathman and Roger Ward that ended up with them finishing in that order. Third was Paul Goldsmith. Uh, in 61, he broke down late in the race, I think, running fifth with the Racing Associate Special. Uh, 62 uh, was, was nothing really to write home about. And it is 63 with the Demler special, but not the laydown. This was a Watson Roadster, and uh, his finishing position is 18th. But actually, he was running, I think, about 6th or 7th when he dropped out. Anyway, what was uh, was interesting later on when I asked him, I said, did you ever drive open-wheel cars? And he said, no, 58-500 was my first uh, uh, time I ever drove an open-wheel. I said, so you never drove modifieds in Michigan? And he said, no. And so... So it comes down to this, that he had eight starts in open-wheel competition in his life, and uh, they were all USAC championship races. Two were at Milwaukee, and uh, the other six were the Indianapolis 500. And uh, he's so respected by the other drivers. Uh, I mean, he, would, he was the USAC stock car champion in 61 and 62 after being a runner-up in 60. And uh, I could just go on and on and on about him. But uh, he was always a very astute businessman and uh, uh, connected with Ray Nichols. And and, uh, uh, so there was Nichols Engineering, which at one time was was building all of the cars that were in uh, Chrysler stock cars. I didn't know this, including all of the Richard Petty cars, uh, uh, apparently, at uh, the Nichols shop in uh, Griffith, Indiana. Uh, Paul is, uh, is the oldest living Indianapolis 500 driver. He still flies, and uh, he's got an airport in Griffith, and I think his airport is, is, uh, is a, an emergency landing for if O'Hare would suddenly shut down. Uh, but anyway, uh, golly, I could just go on and on about him. He's just wonderful motorcycle stories and, and, and stock car stories. He was very shy, uh, didn't say much for, for, for decades, and uh, in the last uh, 10, 12 years, he's sort of come out of the... Of the he's, loosened up a little bit and now he does anecdotes and he's just a, he's become a very very dear friend
1959, there were a couple of things that Paul Goldsmith did in terms of his Indianapolis 500-mile race career. The first is he completed the first of his two top five finishes. The other is he talked to the original voice of the 500, Sid Collins. And now here's another one of our qualifiers today, this time in the Dembler special, Mr. Paul Goldsmith, car number 99. Paul was born in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and now hails from St. Clair Shores, Michigan. I know our friends listening to us on WOHO in Toledo, Ohio. Be glad to hear how you feel today, Paul, after qualifying for your second annual 500-mile race. Well, I feel real good, Sid. I, we're surprised that we got as good a time as we did. However, we were hoping for a little better time like everybody else. Well, now, last week you did a lap of 143.039, a couple up at 142.0, and today you took the checkered flag after qualifying at 142.670, just about the same speed, if not uh, right on the head. Now, why did you happen to take it today and wouldn't accept it last week? Well, last week uh, I sheared oil pump key when we was running, and I almost cut the engine in half. Well, so, then you didn't come in last week because you were afraid the speed would not hold up. No, we uh, were forced to come in. Did you have a lot of practice laps this week? No, we've had the car apart all week long. I had two laps yesterday, and then it started raining. Well, Paul Goldsmith is a former national motorcycle champion back in 1953, a stock car champion, but I think uh, principally motorcycles. How does it feel to be out here on four wheels instead of two? Or are you on two most of the time anyway? Well, you're on three, Sid. You're riding on the right front wheel and uh, the two rear ones. Well, now, your motorcycles didn't have three wheels with a small cab, did they? No, they didn't. What is the big difference? Well, Sid, uh, between the motorcycles and the cars, there isn't a whole lot of difference. Uh, you'd be surprised how much feeling uh, they are to the being the same. same thing and it's so similar that it isn't funny. Well you really go for speed holding a private pilot's license and you also water ski don't you Paul? Yeah I have a lot of fun doing both. And you were in the Merchant Marines during World War II. You're a very versatile individual. <laughs> I try to be Sid. Well actually Paul you were an unhappy uh a member of the group that was mixed up on the first lap last year, so you've never really competed in a 500-mile in race, even one lap, have you? Well, I think I probably hold a record here for running the shortest. Well, last year you came in 30th, so you were right there in the final three to go out. That's right. Starting in 16th, and this time you're just about the same spot in the field, probably. Well, I'm not sure. I didn't check how far back in the field. Oh, we won't know until this day is over in a few more minutes. Well, Paul, good luck to you on race day. We're happy to see you come back and try another chance at Indianapolis. Well, thank you very much. That was Paul Goldsmith from St. Clair Shores, Michigan, in the Demler Special, number 99. Now, fans, stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing. Sorry, Sid. Car number 99, by the way, qualified 16th in that race, and as I mentioned, finished in the fifth position. He started 26th a year later and finished in third. By the way, WOHO of Toledo, Ohio, 1470 on your dial, but number one in the heart of Mike Thompson, who got super excited when he heard that reference to his hometown. When we come back, there were other drivers who raced both IndyCar and have a stock car history, and one of them was a gregarious, popular driver that was part of the most, one of the most iconic and memorable moments of the 80s at the Indianapolis 500. We'll explain when we return to Beyond the Bricks. Hi, I'm Tim Richmond. And this is an original poster of my Indianapolis 500 career created by racing artist Ron Burton. 
This poster is now available for $5 at your 40 Guarantee Auto stores throughout Indiana. I hope you will follow my racing progress throughout May as I drive the Guarantee Auto WTTV special in this year's Indianapolis 500, the greatest spectacle in racing. WTTV special, man. Hope Cowboy Bob is on the side of that car. Tim Richmond, one of the more colorful characters that has come through the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We're talking about him tonight on Beyond the Bricks. Jay Query along with Mike Thompson. And Mike, Tim Richmond's one of those like you. Two things you guys have in common. You're both from Ohio and you're both total characters, right? Well, that's right. Exactly. He, uh, look, I love Tim Richmond. He was one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. And uh, I was actually at Michigan for his last NASCAR cup start. And he he actually almost missed qualifying he overslept in his motorhome and he came running out of the the motorhome and stopped and believe it or not of all people i'd only met him a couple times so it wasn't like we were friends or anything like that he comes up to me and he said did i miss qualifying and i said i think you missed your spot but if you hurry and he ran past me ran down and they actually ended up letting him letting him qualify so then he comes back qualifies the car comes back sees me again and stops and says, you know, thanks so much for helping me out. And and I said, oh, yeah, no problem, anytime. And and then he starts talking to me. He's like, he's like, so how you doing? And I'm fine, you know. And, and then we actually got to talking, and then it came out that I'm from Ohio, and he's from Ashland, Ohio. And he, he just couldn't have been any nicer. But what it ended up, it turned out that was his final cup start and uh you know i'll always carry that memory with me that i got to talk to him a little bit at his what ended up being his his final nascar cup start because he he just was just the, the nicest person and just such a as you said he was a character um he was the, you know the life of the party uh but such a friendly guy and 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 he's so much missed because he was an incredible talent but in just an just so so much fun to be around Tim Richmond ran two Indianapolis 500-mile races. He began in open-wheel racing. He was born in West Palm, Florida, or excuse me, died, excuse me, in West Palm, Florida, but he was born, as I mentioned, in Ashland, Ohio in 1955. Tim Richmond, an Ohioan that was born in 1955 in Ashland, Ohio. And it was his open-wheel racing career that obviously introduced him to the Indianapolis 500, running in 1980 and 1981, including, after that 1980 race, one of the most famous moments away from the action on the racetrack that we have seen in an Indy 500 in recent years. But we'll let those who are more qualified tell you that story. Like, for example, the, again, Speedway historian emeritus Donald Davidson, his memories of Tim Richmond. Uh, basically, at Indianapolis, he had two starts, 1980 and 81, and he was from Ashland, Ohio, and uh, drove USAC sprint cars, and in fact, there was a division called Mini Indy for a short time, which was basically Super V's, and he won one of those, and I think that was like 78 or 79, but he was also, and that's, you know, rear-engine cars, and small rear-engine cars, but he was also, drove uh, sprints quite successfully, and uh, I remember him around quite a bit in 78 and 79, and in 79, uh, he pulled a bit of a coup. I remember that he went to the 500 Victory Banquet. Now, he had not had a ride for the 500 yet, but he went to the Victory Banquet, and his date 
were the three Hearst girls. It was Linda Vaughn and uh, I think June Cochran. I don't remember who the third one was. And I thought, boy, is that guy an operator? He's showing up with the three Hearst girls as his date and hasn't even been in the race yet. Well, uh, he was um, uh, a very refreshing um, uh, newcomer in 1980. And uh, drove for a team. Actually, I think the team was underwritten by his father. But uh, John Barnes, who was uh, who's now been a, a, uh, the principal of Panther uh, since its formation uh, quite a number of years ago. John Barnes was the chief mechanic on this car. Now we're, we're back in the day. They had a Penske chassis, Cosworth engine, and uh, turbochargers. And whether or not uh, they were. Uh, whether they were running the, the correct boost or not, we'll, we'll never know, because uh, the only time when you needed to have legal boost was in the race or during qualifying when it was practicing. I mean, you could sort of fudge a little bit, and it didn't matter. Well, uh, Tim Richmond actually had the fast, as a rookie, the fastest unofficial practice lap of the entire uh, 1980, uh, 1980 season, and I think it was a 193, and uh, he was saying on TV that it was done with uh, legal boost. And I ran into uh, John Barnes in the garage area one day, and I said, well, you know, congratulations, you're on top of the heap. And he said, thank you. And I said, Tim Richmond said uh, on, uh, on TV last night that it was legal boost, and he said, Richmond talks too much. <laughs> but anyway, uh, on the first qualifying day, he was out there hot lapping, and uh, he had an accident. I don't know that it would be considered a major shunt, which is uh, easy for me as, a, as an armchair critic to make that statement. But uh, the car did uh, whack the wall, and uh, he got out. And uh, they they were done for the day. In fact, I think there was a wrinkle in the tub or something, so it was necessary for them to go back to Penske and get another chassis. And so uh, it was not until um, the final weekend that they got in. And I think even then, I believe he was the fifth fastest overall. Well, anyway, he was clearly uh, the class of the field of rookies that year. And uh, he led a lap which was pit stop shuffles, but he was well within the first 10 uh, uh, for much of the race and, and then towards the end. And then uh, within two, three laps of, uh, of the checkered flag with Johnny Rutherford, uh, he slowed down and stopped at the north end uh, coming through uh, turn four, and he was out of fuel. Now, some sanctioning bodies, that would have been a yellow, but uh, fortunately it wasn't here, so the race was able to end. And then Johnny Rutherford... Uh, coming around uh, after the cool-off lap and, and uh, on his way down to Victory Lane, uh, came upon the car stopped uh, sort of almost in the middle of the track, uh, so it's possible to go by on, on both sides. And he was sort of out of the car and just standing there with the car having run dry. And uh, so Rutherford pulled up and then motioned to Tim Richmond to get on the side pod. And it was, it was one, of the, one of the great moments in the speedway because Richmond climbed on the side, hung onto the roll bar, and then Rutherford drove him down the pit lane. And then when he got to the, uh, the hard left turn to go in, into the, the victory area, then Richmond sort of jumped off and, and uh, disappeared into the crowd. But uh, he was waving and, and pointing at Johnny, and the crowd were cheering, and it, it, it was a great moment. 
Donald's story kind of speaks for itself in illustrating and creating the theater of the mind of what took place in that moment with Johnny Rutherford and the famous picture of Tim Richmond riding on the side pod. But when it comes to somebody with that much charisma, somebody that was that popular and likable as Tim Richmond, then perhaps we should hear, even if it's redundancy, the same story. But in the words of the man that was involved, here's Tim Richmond. You know, it's amazing how many people in that situation of Brotherford and I going to Victor Lane together, how many people thought that was a planned, you know, premeditated situation there. Uh, and in fact, it wasn't. Uh, you know, I ran out of fuel. Believe me, if I'd, I would have not tried to run out of fuel because uh, I would have finished probably fifth, I guess, instead of ninth. But then I was talking to the crowd, you know, waving and stuff and having a good time. And, and Jr. drove behind me, and I didn't even see him. And I was looking at the crowd, and they were going, you know, like they were going, look over here. And I looked to my left, and there was Rutherford. And, you know, he, I could just see his hand in there motioning me, come on, come on. And I ran up to the car, and, you know, those things were pretty fragile at the time, the side pods. And he said, I said, right here. And he said, yeah, get on. So I got on, and... I knew he'd won the thing, and he said, where'd you finish? And I said, I don't know. Uh, and I, it was kind of like a joke. I said, where'd you finish at? I said, you did win it, didn't you? And he said, yeah. And so then I held his hand up, and, uh, you know, I was a little embarrassed of being of holding the number one sign up because I was doing it for him. So I held the number one up and pointed to his helmet. And, you know, it's not bad to go to Victory Lane uh, either in a car or on a car in Indianapolis. Top 10 finish for Tim Richmond that day. He finished ninth after starting 19th. In 1981, he returned, started last, finished in 14th. Just two races, and then all of a sudden, Tim Richmond was on his way, Mike, to a car that he said he just kind of liked the way it drove for him. Yeah, I mean, he, he actually ended up getting out of IndyCars because he, he had a huge crash at Michigan later that year in 1980. And, and basically, his family was like, uh, especially his mom was like, I don't know if I really want you in these cars as much. And so they ended up looking around and, and he got into to NASCAR as well. And, and that re he really took to NASCAR pretty quickly. And by the time he, you know, he, he bounced around with a couple of organizations, uh, you know, he drove for DKL Rick for a little bit, but by the time, uh, he drove for the Stacy outfit, but by the time he got with, uh, you know, Raymond Beetle with the old Milwaukee guys, and then later on, uh, you know, driving for Rick Hendrick, uh, he became one of the, the true greats of NASCAR. Here's Donald Davidson on that transition to stock car. Although he was a northerner, and, and in in those days, uh, 1980, it was still pretty much everybody was from the south. Not all, but the majority were. That's changed. But anyway, Richmond, as a, and, and they didn't always seem to take kindly to the northerners. For some reason, there were some that tried it and couldn't quite, uh, you know, infiltrate the bunch. Uh, in, uh, um, uh, Rusty Wallace uh, was able to because he had the gift of the gab, and, and uh, Schrader was able to, but there were some that weren't accepted really well. And Tim Richmond had the charisma to just cut through all of that, and he you know, became almost an instant uh, good old boy. We came back to the Speedway in um, 81, and he qualified again for his father, and he got bumped. And then an arrangement was made on race day that uh, George Snyder would give up uh, his ride in an A.J. Foyt car and that uh, Tim Richmond would drive it on race day. And by the way, uh, the finishing position for Richmond uh, in the 90 race was uh, ninth 
uh, I'm sorry, the uh, the 80 race was ninth, and he did win Rookie of the Year, and then he was 14th in 81, and he went off and he became very, very successful in NASCAR, and then had some uh, health issues, and then of course, uh, then uh, ultimately passed away. But I mean, he really was a very bright star, and it's too bad he didn't stick around Indianapolis a little while longer. But boy, did he do well in NASCAR. IndyCar and Xfinity tomorrow, 12:30, 3:30 respectively. Gates open at 7:30. Mike, a lot of fun all week. Appreciate it, and uh, we'll do it again next year for Beyond the Bricks. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. All right, for Mike Thompson, Eddie Garrison, Sam Rumsa, I'm Jake Query. Folks, have a wonderful day tomorrow with the world's greatest race course, and thanks for listening to Beyond the Bricks.